Deborah and Louise, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. One of the things I wanted to explore with both of you, and Louise uh, knows this space in depth, uh, obviously Deborah, for, you know, former FBI investigator, that in the AML world that, that we're part of, uh, if we were doing these conversations 25 years ago, it was all about drug trafficking, right? That was basically it, maybe some garden variety fraud. Uh, then obviously we had uh, terrorism, 9-11, uh, and a whole host of things since then. Human trafficking is a big issue for our community, but it really wasn't uh, prior to maybe 15 years ago. Elder abuse, all sorts of things. And the area that you folks spend some time in, and I know you do much, many other things, is a wildlife trafficking or environmental crime. So uh, Louise, I was, uh, I was happy to be able to read your book several years ago, Dark Commerce. I actually pulled it out off the shelf and I wanted to start with a quote that you have early in the book when you're talking about the actual transformation of illicit trade. You say, we must rethink the financial system to provide more transparency, restructure the corporate world to focus on accountability and implement strong anti-corruption measures to combat the facilitators of illicit trade. And I also know, Deborah, you work in this space as well, anti-corruption, we'll talk, explore that with you. But Louise, since the book has come out, um, and obviously it's still not only a major issue, but one still trying to get attention from some of the AML community, has there been any improvements uh, in, uh, with some of the recommendations that you offer? Tell us, tell us where we are today in 2021. We're unfortunately still in a growth phase. And we're in a growth phase in large part because of the increased use of technology, mm -hmm. of platforms, of social media, of every kind of encrypted co uh, communications that's allowing for transfers of money. It's allowing for facilitators to operate anonymously. And so, yes, during the pandemic, we've seen not only a growth of illicit timber and, and we've seen continuing wildlife trade, but we've seen enormous growth and proliferation of counterfeits that are needed by personnel um, to protect themselves during the pandemic. So while we've seen disrupted supply chains for things that are normal parts of our supply chain, unfortunately, the illicit supply chains have actually been doing extremely well during the pandemic. Deborah, similar question to you, and that is from a law enforcement perspective, um, you know, looking at, you know, FATF did a report in July on environmental crime and just one of the highlights here is they say that there needs to be better working relationships with what they call non-traditional partners. So environmental protection agencies, getting multi-stakeholder dialogues going. But in terms of the government, law enforcement specifically, what's your sense, both of your old agency and international organizations, how they approach environmental crime and wildlife trafficking specifically? Well, you know, it's kind of remarkable, uh, and it's twofold to, to address what uh, Louise just said. There is a lot of effort being addressed to fight uh, wildlife trafficking and environmental crimes. So in 2016, the U.S. passed the End 
um, uh, Wildlife Trafficking Act, which is mm -hmm. the Eliminate, Neutralize, and Disrupt. Um, and so that was 2016. There is a presidential task force to address wildlife trafficking that is supposed to bring together and help communicate over 17 government agencies from the Department of State, uh, USDOJ, as well as law enforcement agencies, wildlife, uh, US uh, Fish and Wildlife, FBI, DEA, Homeland Security. So there are, there is a concerted effort to apply a great deal of US assets to address this. But as Louise said, uh, I, I don't know if we're being as effective as we could be. And again, you know, that's almost an unfair statement as I'm on the outside looking in now, um, being, having been retired from the FBI. But as Luis says, they're still being incredibly successful because they have all of these new platforms because there are so many ways to communicate with encrypted uh, technology, new ways to move money that aren't traditional uh, wire transfers through US financial or foreign uh, financial institutions. So uh, there's got to be more done or strategically being smarter uh, to address the money flows and um, uh, I, Louise knows, I, I spoke at George Mason in 2019, and I talked about tracing the money in wildlife trafficking, and what you see when you look at seizures of wildlife, uh, or seizures related to wildlife trafficking, you see the, the seizures of the product, you see the seizures of tusk and pangolin, but what you don't see is huge uh, tr uh, tracing and asset recovery of the money involved. And wildlife trafficking is supposed to be a $23 billion industry, then why aren't we seeing US and foreign law enforcement recovering millions of, or hundreds of millions of dollars from those involved in wildlife trafficking? That, that's a good point. The, um, uh, the, the FATF study talks about this being a space of low risk, high reward, Louise. And I know in your book, you had a number of case studies without going into the detail of the case studies, maybe give us an example, uh, maybe a basic example of how wildlife trafficking enables corruption and the monies get moved. So what, what would be, as, as you're telling your students, you know, day one of a class, here's what we're talking about. Here's the way this works. We know in human trafficking, for example, that you look at financial footprints of uh, uh, massage parlors and certain places which unfortunately have been havens for those that traffic victims, right? So we've learned that over time. We know that transactions after midnight are typically suspect. Transactions in, in um, even dollar amounts, you know, on credit cards, same, same. So we've learned that really only in the past decade and now financial institutions are better equipped. In the wildlife space, there's probably only a handful of multinational institutions that uh, you know, have anything dedicated to this, but give us an example of what we mean by wildlife trafficking uh, in terms of the financial aspects of it. There, what we're looking at are long supply chains so that many of the commodities that are shipped start in Africa, whether they are um, elephant tusks, whether we're talking about fish, whether we're talking about pangolins, and then they transit a long distance, often in circuitous routes. So for example, one shipment of 
of uh, ivory that was seized in Southeast Asia had transited nine countries before it was picked up there. So there are a lot of airlines involved. There's a transport sector. Um, there's a, a wonderful case that I teach from and have my students walk, walk them through of a crime of rockfish, rockfish and lobster out of South Africa mm -hmm. um, in which the, the criminal was involved in, in um, he was a, a businessman who also had a legitimate side to his business. And that's often what we see in illicit wildlife trade. We see people who are in both legal and illegal at the same time, like taxidermists who are preserving illicitly um, hunted species and illicit. But let's go back to this fishing case in South Africa where people were being bribed for to let the rock lobsters go to Maine. And then this person was also trafficking South Africans to go to Maine to also um, uh, pa package and process the lobsters. Eventually the person was caught and much of the money was located in offshore, like um, in off the coast of like the Isle of Jersey. Mm -hmm. They were able to follow the money and it was millions and millions of dollars as a result of this investigation. But it involved, you know, South Africa, the United States, European banking. We're looking at a global uh, criminal enterprise that converged with other kinds of crime like human trafficking. You know, um... Deborah, what I'm thinking, and, and again, going back to the FATF report, but this is not new with them, they talk a lot about the need for law enforcement globally to work together, to share information, right? And I know when you were at the FBI, you, you've worked on issues on kleptocracy. That's a corruption issue, of course. I have to think that this could be part of that as well. But talk a bit about uh, the importance of information sharing and working together. Obviously, the FBI for, for a number of years has had offices throughout the world. So we're well aware of that. So whatever they're called, liaisons or, or whatever. So you already have that. But how important is it uh, from the U.S. perspective and vice versa with the other countries, you know, South Africa, Asian countries, that there be a law enforcement partnership with other law enforcement agencies? And, and is, there, is there hurdles to doing that? What's, what's your sense of that? Well, as Louise just mentioned, uh, in the example with the fish, I mean, how many, you know, Africa was involved, European banks were involved, U.S. law enforcement was involved. And so the United States could not address international wildlife trafficking when we're not the uh, point of origination without the cooperation of foreign law enforcement. So that's essential. What you find, though, often is that the point of origin um, may not have the bandwidth to apply the needed number of law enforcement to address it at the point of origin. They, um, there is a great deal of corruption in um, certain aspects. So maybe the law enforcement officers there are honest and, and diligently investigating this, but you have people on the take that are anti-poaching people that are actually facilitating it. You have customs agents who are taking bribes to get it out of the country. You, uh, 
you have um, bribes to get um, illegal uh, transport and, and other types of things. So it, it, we certainly count on our foreign law enforcement partners to have any type of success in tracing, tracking, and uh, putting into wildlife trafficking. But there are hurdles because uh, they may not have the expertise, they may not have the bandwidth, uh, the number of people uh, uh, addressing corruption there. I know that for years, uh, decades, the FBI has been working with anti-poaching teams all over Africa. And, um, you know, they have some success, but obviously uh, with the number of wildlife um, seizures that have occurred, the, the amount of wildlife trafficking that is occurring right now, it's not having the level of success that needs to be done. It must be a big resource challenge, right? Because there's so many priorities that FBI and other agencies have, you know, and you now put, you'll overlay that now with unfortunately domestic terrorism, which was not a major issue a decade ago, which, you know, we could, we could argue around the edges. And so when you have to devote, um, you know, attention to this, you have, you know, theft of art, you have uh, the movement of antiquities, and now you have, you have this environmental crime. So, you know, what goes, I guess, not, what's not the decision making, but when the agency has to make a call on prioritization, um, you know, what goes into that what goes into those conversations? I realize you weren't at the, those levels necessarily, but you, you obviously knew why there was a decision. Yes, we're, we are going to do some of this. We are going to work with the anti-poaching groups, that sort of thing. How do, how do those conversations high level go in terms of where to put your, you know, put your resources? Well, you know, we're very fortunate that the United States has applied a great deal amount of resources to addressing, but right. it also ties back into what Louise was saying earlier too is that the, the fishing group was not only involved in illicit lobsters and fish coming out of Africa, but they were also involved in human trafficking. There have been poachers or uh, wildlife traffickers who have been uh, intercepted who found out that they were also moving heroin. There are, um, when we, we were tracking some uh, illegal teak coming out of Uganda, uh, when they stopped some of those tr teak transports uh, within some of the hollowed out logs, there was ivory, right? So uh, the good and bad news is that those involved in wildlife trafficking aren't involved only in wildlife trafficking. They are also involved in a, a myriad of other criminal activities, all of which U.S. law enforcement is also addressing. So that actually adds more bodies that are addressing wildlife trafficking because at the same time they are equally addressing heroin and drug trafficking. They are addressing um, a natural resource like timber trade, um, illegal harvesting of mahogany teak. And, uh, and again, the same uh, culprits. Uh, so much of the wildlife trafficking is going through Vietnam. Well, I can mm -hmm. tell you a great deal of the illegal teak that is coming out of Central Africa is also going to Vietnam and ending up in the United States. So at least that provides us with venue to go after some of these um, illegal networks. Can I go say ahead, something? Louise, go ahead. Also, what I think of and why we need to pursue this illicit wildlife trade is not only the fact that it is so harmful to biodiversity, but 
it is also the soft underbelly of organized crime. When traffickers, and we found this doing research on the east coast of Africa, were trafficking drugs, they were very careful about how they trafficked drugs, covered their tracks. But since nobody was as concerned about wildlife products, they'd be more care careless. And therefore, by finding the following the wildlife trade, one got to key hubs of the drug trade. Mm. And therefore, this is what you want to, to do as a law enforcement person, Deborah can speak more to this, but you want to find a point of entry. You want to be able to find the groups, find their modus operandi and follow the money. And there can be even more money attached. And sometimes in one case that I wrote about in dark commerce, by following the wildlife trade, we also found illegal uranium smuggling, mm -hmm. which also has global national security challenges because it was sitting in the national park and the animals were being trafficked out of the park and the uranium was being trafficked out of the park. So this is this, is this whole point of convergence and where do you find the easiest entry point to understand the crime syndicates that are moving these activities, these goods? You know, uh, one of the things your book covered, which still resonates with me today, was the, um, the impact all of this has on society. You know, you talked about the impact on the environment, but I also recall, at least in some sections of the book, you talked about the impact on poverty, um, you know, uh, the supply chain, as you mentioned. So give us a, uh, give us a quick sense of why should, why should we care about wildlife trafficking besides the obvious that obviously it's destroying elements of nature? That part is fairly clear. But I think you've made a strong point, and I'll ask Deborah her thoughts as well, in terms of the, uh, the impact on corruption in certain countries where it just elevates that and puts more people. The, 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 the divide between rich and poor is, is so dramatic. And so when this happens, there's that collateral impact, which we don't always talk about, frankly, in the AML community. We don't always talk about, we, we talk about, you know, you know, we got to want to get rid of illegal drugs and, and, and want to stop human trafficking, but we don't always talk about the collateral damage that occurs from these financial crimes. And I thought you covered that really well in your book. So give us a sense of, again, besides the obvious, why we should care as a society to try to stem the flow of these environmental crimes. Well, let me get to, you know, you've the key issue of today, which is COVID. Mm -hmm. And how are these issues related to COVID? Well, first of all, the major source of diseases that are pandemic that we have been extremely worried about in the last decade, because COVID is not the first SARS-related disease, is zoonotic transmission. And, and that's the transmission of disease from animals to human beings. Mm -hmm. And one of the principal ways that this occurs is first the destruction of habitat, but also the illicit wildlife trade. And I have a colleague in track who's a, a, a veterinarian and a specialist on, on pandemics and zoonotic transmission. And already over a dozen years ago, he was writing 
on the problem of illicit trade and zoonotic transmission, but nobody was paying attention to this. How did, now, we just finished last week the International Union of Conservation of Nature's annual, not annual, um, convention that occurs every four years. And there was an emergency resolution put forward to deal with this issue of biodiversity and zoonotic transmission, tying it to the issue of illicit trade. And this did not even come to the fore of the membership. I hate to say that there is probably corruption and political influence on people leading the IUCN. And therefore, they, they rejected this issue on a technicality and people are going to press ahead. But really sort of trivial issues were accepted unanimously and this was not. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's very tied to, to countries in which leadership is making a large amount of money through this or that governments are covering up the, the cost of disease that come from this illicit trade in animals. So this is our number one concern in the world today is a global community, and it's very much tied to the issues that we're talking about today. Wow, I mean, that, that sort of does absolutely bring it home. Uh, Deborah, thoughts as well? Well, I think it's, just, it's, it's perpetuating criminal enterprises, especially in third world countries. So, I mean, you look at Africa, and which is the um, point of origin for so much of the human uh, animal trafficking that's coming, um, that's moving through the wildlife trafficking trade. And, you know, it's like, it's wildlife trafficking is the fourth greatest revenue generator of illicit finance, uh, you know, behind drugs and human trafficking. And um, I just think it, it's providing and, and perpetuating the, criminal networks that are operating out of third world countries that are trying to fight corruption. Right. And it's just a quick and easy source of money. The animals can't fight back. You don't have to have a mining or drilling operation. You know, it, it's, um, it's, it's doing a great deal of harm to an entire continent. The, um, the FATF report that I referenced in, uh, from July, which everybody should take a look at, obviously gives you uh, some some really good examples of the gaps that they see. They say there's not enough money laundering cases to be helpful at this point, so they're hoping that they get more information. Uh, they also say, again, there should be multi-stakeholder dialogues. And I just wanted to reference that point from, from this perspective, Louise. Um, I was uh, on, on some of the calls that you folks helped organize uh, over the summer uh, with people that are obviously experts in the environmental space. And a couple of us were on from AML, some bankers, and we're very interested, of course, again, you know, it's, it's clear this is a problem. You, both of you have really given us a very uh, a specific re rationale for why this should be a focal point. But we also know, you know, resource issues, the same that law enforcement has. Law enforcement Obviously, Deborah has, has, has done much more than the financial sector, but there's only probably a handful of multinational banks that are paying attention to this, whereas most AML officers high level know about these issues, but don't know what they can do. So th with that as a backdrop, I think part of our role, meaning those of us in this community for as long as some of us have been, is 
outreach, communication, try to better explain it. So I'd like to get from both of you, besides looking at FATF and maybe some other websites, I know Track has done a lot of good stuff in this space. Louise, what would you recommend an AML officer that wanted to get up to speed on this issue, uh, perhaps knows that he or she, their institution is going to be doing more global work, so there may be some resource ability. Where would you send them to better understand what you folks have done a great job of explaining briefly this morning? I think they need to look at the FATF report. Mm -hmm. I think there's resources within ACAMS. There are webinars that have been produced mm -hmm. under a co consortium that's called TNRC mm -hmm. um, that Deborah was part of and we've had other speakers do and there are blogs and supporting material that goes with this. But I think we also need to be much more focused on the future. Yeah. Um, last week, I had a, a discussion with a, a major NGO um, that is collecting really very significant resources to deal with nature crime in the coming years. And they showed me a chart of what they plan to do. And there was nowhere was the financial community represented in this chart. And I said, well, you know, we'll be happy to join your coalition and we'll ha be happy to help try and bring in the financial community because what you're, you're, you're missing is absolutely key in fighting this problem. So there are resources to read. There are some online training courses that I know are available. Um, and, you know, that's the fundamental. But I think we need to think back and look at this report that was done by FATF mm -hmm. and how much cases were broken with the collaboration of NGOs and civil society. So there's a reference to the Environmental Investigative Agency. There's a reference to Liberty Asia, all of which help the banking community, and there are more of them. And that's the way we started to break the problems on human trafficking, Right. was to work with survivors, to work with NGOs, and try and figure out these problems. It wasn't just a collaboration with law enforcement. It was a collaboration with civil society. And much of this civil society in the environmental space is now well-financed. Mm -hmm. I mean, not extraordinarily, but some of this is coming along where we're really talking about significant resources. So there'll be a future that we need to plan together of how this issue, as it comes onto the forefront and is being supported by you know, some of the billionaires of the world and some of the major countries that are concerned about this, that we get into the planning process of how the financial issues are going to be addressed as we address this problem. That's a great point. And the analog to human trafficking is uh, so spot on. When I was at ACAMS, we, we had outreach from some bankers. It was interesting. It was not even the highest level of the AML. It was sort of the investigators. So they came to their bosses and said, hey, look, we think we have transactional information that could be indicative of human trafficking, but we're not sure we'd like to partner with law enforcement. So what we did at ACAMS is we organized several meetings with Homeland Security and FBI agents with these 
investigators. So all the smart folks went off in a room and came up with these new typologies, new to us, and we were able to release that to the broader community. And to your point, Louise, we then partnered with Polaris and some, uh, some other organizations that are anti-trafficking so that we had a better appreciation. And I, did, I actually just did a uh, interview recently with um, Sarah Crow from Polaris, but also uh, a, a um, former victim or a victim of trafficking who now works for an organization uh, that, uh, that does um, research. And so what she was able to do, which is really interesting, she gave her bank records from when she was being trafficked to PayPal and Capital One. And those folks sort of sliced and diced it and came up with additional examples of what could be a red flag, if you will, for human trafficking. So clearly we can do the same thing in the environmental crime space. It's just a question of getting, as you say, the people uh, to the table. And, and I know you do a great job of reaching out to people. Uh, and I think that's something that hopefully conversations like this uh, can enable. So I think that, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's something that will be a takeaway, hopefully for everybody watching this. Uh, Deborah, let me, let me uh, give you uh, your final thoughts on this. Uh, what, you know, what other recommendations do, do you have besides all the great information you've already given us? You know, what I highly recommend, as Louise said, to bring in the financial uh, AML investigators, I would bring together, and you know, maybe this is something uh, Louise may want to host at some point, but bring in the top NGOs that work wildlife trafficking and then bring in and, and host a banking roundtable for the anti-money laundering um, sections of all the major banks that are the US correspondent banks for Asia, right? Mm -hmm. For Vietnam, Laos, uh, China, and Africa. And say, you know, bring in the examples that are brought up by FATA, bring up the examples that are mentioned in Luis's book, uh, and all of the, the great analytical work that's been done in the last five years and say, these are what you need to be looking for. Like, so that they can add these search terms for, um, and look for anomalies. Are there certain, uh, when Yanukovych fled Ukraine, right? We saw a mass exodus of money coming through US financial institutions coming out of Ukraine, where people were trying to get their money out of Ukraine before the conflict with, uh, with Russia. When uh, President Buhari took uh, over in Nigeria, there was a mass exodus of money out of Nigeria. So are there anomalies that AML sections and anti-fraud sections at the major financial institutions that deal with this region of the world could be looking for and red, as red flags? And I, I think that might help to identify some of the um, individuals and where the money, how the money is moving and where the money is going and ending up so that it can be addressed. That's great. Louise, any final thoughts? I'm just looking forward to this future collaboration. I think it's key. And I think this, this, web, this podcast webinar is just what we're talking about. Where you've had banking experience. I'm a researcher who often uses advanced digital analysis with my teams. And Deborah is an investigator par excellence. And this is what we need to go forward. You know, um, your, your book, uh, 
really got me to first focus on this a couple of years ago. And again, I'm going to read from the very last paragraph in your book, because I think it says this, uh, amplifies what you say so well. The challenges are great. The windows of opportunity to reverse the planet's present tragic course are limited. Let us hope that the mundane but important facts, acts of ordinary citizens, combined with the extraordinary acts of a few, help reverse the current growth trajectory of dark commerce. We don't want a future where there's no trade of any form, nor jobs on a dead planet. So to my earlier point, you, you covered societal impacts in addition to sort of the uh, financial crime prevention aspects in your book, which I think really helps bring people maybe that are on the sidelines uh, to better understand, uh, because I'm convinced that our community, and I've been in this community 35 plus years, wakes up every day thinking we can, we, we help society some way, what we do, you know, whatever it's filing a suspicious transaction report, you know, whether it's doing risk assessment, that what we do actually matters. Not everybody in the financial sector feels the same way, but our, our world does. And I know that we can get additional folks, not just interested in what you two have talked about today, but potentially engaged and helpful and add their expertise to what you're looking for. So, Thanks so much for doing this, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully this will be one of many additional conversations we have with yourselves and your colleagues. And uh, you know, if we can do any more, let us know. But this has really been super helpful and thanks both of you for, for what you do.